You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. All right, we are back in Genesis, um, back in Genesis 4, and let's get into it. Um, I'm going to start today by asking you all a very important question, all right? And it's a question that a more majority of us have pondered, wondered about. It is very important that we answer this question honestly. All right? Are you ready? Here it is. Aren't older siblings just the worst? I mean, they're mean to you. They say nasty things sometimes. Um, they take your stuff without asking. They're devious enough to beat you up when your parents aren't looking, but charismatic enough to point it and make it your fault. Um... And so, we younger siblings, we got it rough, right? Of course, I jest and joke. After all, as we all know, the youngest is the favorite child and could never get in trouble. But is it not astounding? (laughs) Is it not astounding the speed at which siblings get in trouble? Oh, it starts off small, seemingly innocent, and making stupid faces and stupid comments at each other. And then suddenly... They are having a full-on screaming match and and a um, recreating of a Little League MMA fight. Our family is not at the point yet um, for that, but I have definitely experienced this scenario because of being a counselor and more so when we were house parents at Christ's home. And I vividly remember times where these fights would break out, punching each other, and they would be seemingly out of nowhere and for no reason. And now you have to be a modern-day Sherlock Holmes hearing out both sides, trying to figure out what even caused this thing. Um, Well, she said this, and he said that. They did this. And you keep going back and back to try and find the truth. My Oma uh, once told me that there are not two sides to every story, but that there are actually three sides. Your own side of the story, their side of the story, and then the truth you're both trying to hide. (laughs) And so that is what you got to do, right? you got to keep backtracking, going back to what they said, he said, and you kind of go through the retelling of everything until um, you find out it's a silly reason, like, well, I whacked them because they fought it too close to me. So, but unless we know those signs and the silly interactions that lead up to them, to the MA fight, it tends to seemingly pop out of nowhere, right? But if we are alert and aware of the early signs, we are able to nip it in the bud. And it is the same with our sin. If we allow even the small sin to go unchecked as some, unwe- as some welcomed guest, it festers and grows, begetting sin after sin um, until it develops into a beast that is far out of our control. In fact, at that point, it controls us. After all, as First Peter says, we must be sober-minded watchful, and watchful as our adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is going... Seeking someone to devour. He's going to be happy with any sin that we give into. And that beast of sin is in us. We are born with that sinful nature. We know right when we are born that that sin is tainting us. I see it already in Hans, as great as he is, but he likes to go. We taught him not to touch the outlets, and he's been good with that. But he, he's prideful. He, he, we clap for him when he doesn't touch the outlets, and so now he goes and he inches closer, make sure we're looking, and then he'll go, 
oh, no, I'm not doing it. So that we'll clap for him. Like, good job. And he, 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 we know he's never even going to touch it. He just does it because he wants us to clap for him. Um, and it's by that nature, left to our own devices, we will feed into that beast and increasingly and consistently give in to the evil desires. And it's a result of the fall that we saw a few weeks ago in Genesis 3. And that desire can never be satisfied and will demand more and more of you. That is why we must adhere to today's big idea. idea. Rule over the beast in your heart by doing well, turning to the protective grace of God. Rule over the beast in your heart by doing well, turning to the protective grace of God. All right. So today we're continuing our series through Genesis. As you know, our series vision for Genesis has been that we would know who we are by knowing where we come from and the God who created us. We were looking, as you recall, at the beginning, the creation of the world, the creation of us, and the fall into sin and the curse that it brings unto God's creation. Um, the first three chapters of Genesis record many of first, and now we will continue to look at the first humans that are born into this curse. The first sibling rivalry, the first recorded sin after the fall, which, um, <clears throat> which spirals into murder as a result of the fallen nature. Open your Bibles to Genesis 4, looking at verse 1 through 16. If you need a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere in a back seat near you or on the ground by you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours. All right. So last we left off, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, and the earth was plunged into sin, tainting all of creation. Now that they are out of the garden, let's see how Adam and Eve are doing in the aftermath of the fall. Let's see how this taint of sin really affects us and affects God's image bearers. Maybe things are going well and not as bad as they seem. Hmm. Starting in verse 1. Now Adam, and Eve, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help from the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when... They were in a field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground, to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive the bro your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. 
I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And, the Lord, and so the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should, be, should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, we are off to a great start. Not even one recording in the word goes by that we encounter a murder, no less a murder of someone killing their own brother. I know siblings tend to say, I could just kill you, but he took it a little too literal there. And what even caused this? It, like we said, it seemingly comes out of nowhere. One mess up of a sacrifice and you kill your brother? What could motivate someone so much to kill their own brother in their own blood? Well, to learn this, we can apply the same method as we did as when we were Sherlock Holmes investigating the MMA fight. So let's go back to the start. So at, now Adam and Eve, uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with help from the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of the sheep, and Cain was the worker of the ground. Um, we don't have to do a deep dive into the original terminology of Adam knew his wife to understand that it's simply not just an acknowledgement of her existence. Um, this new is a much more intimate knowing, and they were fulfilling the command that were given to them to be fruitful and to multiply. Um, the word, this word for know is used throughout the Bible in reference to our relationship with God, in a sense of knowing God as opposed to just knowing him. And we will get into the significance of that later. We also see that God is faithful to his promise as the first two Men are born to Adam and Eve. The, first, the firstborn into sin is Cain, who becomes a tiller of the field, followed by his brother Abel, who became a keeper of sheep. Given the agrarian culture of the time, these would have been the backbone occupations of, the of their time. And we are not given a time span between their births. Some speculate that Cain and Abel may have even been twins. Um, and whether this is true or not, it does not weigh, it does not, sorry, it does not weigh any importance to the story, otherwise it would have told us that. Um, what is important is that we have the first, firstborn unto sin. Image bearers of God that begin to fill the earth tainted by the curse of sin. And so Eve joyfully responds, I have gotten a son with help from the Lord. You can imagine where her thoughts may have been. Um, you could say that she may have been hopeful because God had still blessed him with children despite the pain and the present, that is present due to the fall. And even more so hopeful that the hope of her seed promised by God to crush the serpent may have just came through her firstborn. It's already a joyful occasion to have children. I know personally I was overwhelmed when Hans was born um, with joy. But for Adam and Eve, this joy would have been multiplied since they also knew God's promise that their image-bearing offspring would one day crush the head of the serpent and be the deliverer of Adam and Eve. The hope for the cure from the curse of sin that would come from their seed. It would be reasonable to assume that her thoughts could be somewhere in the realm of, well, could it be this soon? Would it happen with my firstborn son? Um, 
And of course, though, we as readers know the answer to these questions and that that specific seed would come much later. Alas, the firstborn unto Eve is born with the same desire for its sin nature that they had begot from the fall, which of course is the same sin nature that we are all born with as well. We have plenty of firsts here, the first image bearers born unto sin, the first siblings, the first occupations, the first children. This is our setting of the story today. Um, there are many firsts of man who are looking towards the goal of receiving the redemptive cure to the curse of sin and to be reconciled with their creator. And so now we would get into what the first ever recorded worship session looked like and what the first ever sin looked like for man post-garden. Starting in verse 3. Um, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of his fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule of it. All right. Sin is like taxidermy. Titus McGrath might remember this story, but when I worked at Black Rock Retreat, uh, we were cleaning the nature center together one time. And we, as we were dusting off the taxidermy, we were talking, and I believe it was Titus that came up with the idea to take one of the taxidermies and we went and took the taxidermy from the nature center for a prank. We took it from the nature center, and we um, stuffed it into a golf cart, and we hid it in the girls' lodging. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do believe Martha was the first one that walked in on it. <laughs> um, and so we put it there for whoever would first go into the bathroom would be met with that nice dog. Um, <laughs> just chilling in the bathroom. And so that's what the dog did. It waited there for the first unsuspecting guest to show up and attack them. Um, sin is like this taxidermy, waiting in the bathroom, though it is much more rear, real and dangerous than that dog. And that beast of sin is in us. It's, not, it's our fallen nature. Sin isn't this fall-off, distant, dangerous animal that we only encounter if we go into the woods. Um... It's our beastly desire, sin nature desires within you, hiding in your bathroom, ready at all times to attack. And since the fall of Adam, everyone that is born is born with that same sin nature that is passed down from generation to generation. And each one of us inherits that sin nature. In layman's terms, this is the doctrine of total depravity. Steve Lawson puts it this way, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that all humankind is as evil as it could possibly be. Rather, it means that sin affects the whole person. We are born corrupted, poisoned, and polluted by sin. Our minds are darkened, and we cannot see or understand the truth. Our hearts are defiled so that they do not love the truth. We love what we should hate, and we hate what we should love. Our wills are in bondage to sin, and we cannot believe the gospel in and of themselves. We sin because we are sinners and because we have a sin nature. We are naturally totally depraved, and so we must not allow our beastly nature of sin to take up comfortable residence in our home. We must war against it. 
And, and we must recognize that that beach is crouching at the door at all times. It's seeking for our blood. And so that's our first point today and our first warning of today. Your beastly desires crouch at your door, seeking your blood. Your beastly desires crouch at your door, seeking your blood. Um, so in these verses today, we have the first recorded instance of man's worship to God. We are not given any instructions by God right here on how sacrifices should be done, but we are later in the narrative of the Bible. But we can assume that God had given instructions because, well, Cain and Abel are doing it. And so we can assume that God must have given them some type of instruction of how he would want to be worshipped. Um, we are told that Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions, and that Cain brings a, <clears throat> sorry, that Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Both offerings make sense, given their occupations. It makes sense that Abel would bring an animal, since he is a keeper of animals, and that Cain would bring grain, since, well, or fruits of the ground, because he works the ground for food. Um, and yet, um, <clears throat> sorry, two brothers and two offerings, and yet one is not accepted. Why is that? It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why? Why couldn't Cain make an acceptable offering? All right, calm down. All the dads in the room are trying to resist the obvious dad joke here because he wasn't able. But in all seriousness, though, we are not given a direct reason right here in the specific text. Now, some scholars will point. <laughs> Still recovering back there from that. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, we are not given a direct um, reason right here in the specific text. Some scholars will point towards the offerings, how Abel's offering was of the firstborn and the fat portions, being the best of his flock, while the description of Cain's offering was simply the fruit of the ground, not specifying if it was the best of the ground or that it was the first crop. And these scholars will point to this and to the law of Deuteronomy where God prescribes grain offering as a sacrifice for thanks and blood sacrifices being the primary offering. Um, and thus, these scholars would say that Cain's offering had no regard from God because his worship was not done properly. And I understand where they are coming from with this. And of course, the way we worship God is very important. Um, this approach also provides an interesting note from a greater narrative of the entire Bible, that Abel's sacrifice, which is that born not of himself, of something else, um, is accepted, but Cain's, which is made from his own works, is not accepted. Um, it all points back to the shadow of the spotless Savior King who would shed his blood for the ultimate sacrifice while our own works cannot succeed. I think it's a fair point to make, and it can provide a good lesson from wh what we are given. But despite how great of a typological analogy that is, we are simply not told that that is the reason God having no regard here in the text. However, what we are told is that God had regard for Abel and his offering and no regard for Cain and his offering. It is not simply just the offering, but as well as the person behind the offering. God is looking at the heart condition, not just the physical presentation of their worship. We are told in other places in the Bible the reason for the rejection of Cain's sacrifice. Hebrews 1-2 says, For by it the people of old received their commendation, and then skipping the four, 
by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Uh, Abel offered, sorry. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith. Sure, Cain's offering was lacking. And it's a great way to look at, it's great to look at the specific reasons why his offering was wrong. However, it is not an either or, but a both and. And it is Cain's heart condition which is the root of his incorrect offering, and his offering having no regard. And thus we have and thus he and his offering were rejected, and this makes Cain not so happy. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Did that ever happen to you? Maybe you got an F on a project, but someone who didn't really try got an A. And you're like, oh, what? They just suck it up to the teacher. Like, mm. Or, um, I just can't stand that teacher. The, mm, it's all their fault. And this is what Cain is doing with God, right? He's not just upset with God. He is. He's not just angry. He's very angry at him. So much so that it's not just this inner brewing, like, mm. it's like, it says his face fell. Like, he's very angry at God. We like to look at Cain, Cain's murder and see it as the first sin committed outside of the garden, but we gloss over the foundational sin of his anger, which begets that, that murder. Anger against his brother and anger against God himself. Jesus tells us that murder and anger are both um, subject to judgment, and anger is what we call the murder of the heart. And yet Cain is embracing it. You decline my sacrifice, huh? I'll show you. Mm. He is straight up tilted at God. Have you ever been angry with God? In those scenarios where you are just not happy with him? Is it not so good in those scenarios when someone just comes to you and talks some sense to you? Um, right? To offer some way to bring us back out of our emotions and bring us into the reality of the truth that God is good and right and just in all that he does. And so God does this for Cain, starting again at the end of verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here we, here we have God ask a few questions and provides then a warning to Cain. So he says, why are you angry? Why is your face falling? Obviously, this is not God questioning because he has a lack of knowledge on his part. As we know, God knows every part of our hearts. Psalm says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There is no sin that goes unchecked by God. Um, nothing is hidden by him. Um, <clears throat> And, God, and so God does not need to ask Cain questions for his sake to try to figure out what's going on. Um, as if he had no idea what was going on with Cain in his heart. It is for Cain's sake that he questions him. And we do this with kids, don't we? As a way to prompt a child to think through what they have done. Um, of course we... Um, sorry. So a kid steals from the cookie jar and we say, Why did you take that cookie? Of course we know why they took the cookie. They wanted a cookie. But it's for the child's sake so that they can um, think through what they have done. 
and so that they can learn and to give a chance for the kid to examine their heart and admit that they were wrong in doing so and then apologize to their parents. This questioning of Cain echoes God's approach to Adam in the garden with his questions, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Of course God knows where they are, but it gives them a chance of repentance. And thus in both cases, shows God's available grace, providing a chance for man to examine himself and repent, to turn away from their beastly desires to satisfy self and return to the true nature of, of being an image bearer of God. And so God continues his question of Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? The word accepted here can also mean be forgiven, to be set right with God. God is calling Cain to examine himself, soften his heart, and realize he needs to turn away from his building anger and turn towards God in repentance. And we must not be fools into thinking do well means some type of works righteousness here, right? Um, to do well it is an omission of our sin nature and turning to God, who is the only one able to forgive those sins and make us right. To do well is to be with God. In case the message was not clear to Cain, God warns him of the effects of his sin. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires are contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Its desires are contrary to you, and you must rule over it. All right. Florida is a place of many wonders and mysteries and is the origin of odd stories and modern folklore. It is always a joy to read an article that title begins with Florida Man, which makes it sound like it's some type of superhero, Florida Man, um, that's committing all these outrageous acts. Um, it, it's always some adventurous tale of an unsuspected person breaking the law in the most outrageous way and accomplishing the impossible task. <laughs> here, we have so, here are some of my favorite articles of Florida Man. Florida Man threw live gator into Wendy's drive through window, police say. Florida Man arrested while trying to warn the United States Space Force about battle between the aliens and the dragons. Florida man claiming he is Mick Jagger arrested for picking fights with Naples diners. <laughs> and Florida man arrested for trying to rob a Waffle House with finger guns. Whenever you need an example of Romans 1, you just need Florida man there. Among these stories are often these types of people that just cannot be settled with having a dog or a cat, right? Um, it is, it, they always have the strangest animals as their pets. It seems a year does not go by where we hear about some Floridian person that has an alligator in their bathtub or they're breeding toxic frogs. One, should st one such story caught my attention one year with a woman who from birth raised a dangerous python. And year after year, foot after foot of growth, the woman would take care of the snake, feeding it, bathing it, loving it, giving it a home. She even would allow it to roam free in the house, letting it to go wherever it pleases even while she slept, to the point where the snake would even join her own bed and cuddle up with her. Um, she was so happy with her pet snake, so loving and cold. Until one year, the snake began to stop eating. She was so worried, and it concerned her because she wouldn't, he wouldn't even accept food from her owner. So concerned for her snake's health, she brought it to the vet, and the vet informed her that nothing's wrong with the snake. It's not sick. 
It does not, it didn't even lose its appetite. Simply, it was getting ready for a large meal, which was its loving owner. The owner denied it, saying, oh, he would never do that. He loves me, saying things like, he even cuddles with me in bed. Um, the vet informed her that this cuddling was actually him sizing her up to realize how empty he would need to be to eat her. Are you cuddling your snake? Not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. Are you so infatuated with your sin that you treat it lovingly? Has sin become like this snake in her home? It isn't even crouching at the door anymore. It's a welcome guest in your bed. You feed it, care for it, coddle it, all while thinking, there's no harm in it. Meanwhile, its only goal is to devour you. It's unfearing, feeling, uncaring, and its only directive is, to is your destruction. It's desirous contrary to you. And it's exactly why we must be vigilant. Do not allow your sin to comfortably make its home at your door. We must be killing the part of us um, that desires to give it to sin. Do not try to justify your sin by saying things like, I got it under control. It doesn't really affect me. It doesn't really hurt anyone. Does it really matter then? That is such a foolish way to look at your sin. You don't have it under control. It does really affect you, and it is hurting others. And above all, all sin is an offense to God. We must rule over it. The prank Titus and I pulled from earlier did not turn out the way we planned. I have another photo here. Um... Instead of getting jump-scared of the taxidermy, Martha and her friend Sarah end up making friends with the wolf and getting ready, I guess, for a 3D movie. If that thing was real, though, you would not be laughing it up with him and trying to go see the latest Super Mario movie or something. Um, you would be afraid of it, right? You would run out the door trying to find something to, someone or something to, either, to try to protect you, right? And yet we do this with our sin. Instead of ruling over it, we allow it to become buddy-buddy with it. Instead of ruling over it, we allow it to rule over us. Romans 6 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Do not fool yourselves into thinking you can have control over your sin. It cannot become your cute pet. Rather, you become the pet of a parasitic tapeworm. And it simply will just grow more and more and more left to its own devices. People wonder sometimes how they become so entrenched in their sins. Um, you ask yourselves, oh, how on earth did I get so encapsulated with this sin? Um, but, <clears throat> excuse me. And yet you ignore the steps and the warnings and the signs that you passed by when you gave into your desires to return back to your vomit. What was once a longing, lustful thought was then invited into your home and grew more and more. A longing, lustful look became a longing, lusting thought. Till now, every day it's filled not just with those thoughts, but the act of watching depictions of your lust displayed online in order to momentarily satisfy the commands of your adulterous heart. What simply started as, Gossip disguised as a prayer request against your fellow church member has been allowed to slip by uncared for so much that instead of prayer, now it's just plain old venting. 
And instead of venting, now it has grown into full-fledged anger, despising your brother or sister in Christ, committing the murder of heart, as Jesus said. Examine yourself. What are you allowing to fester in your home? Ask God to reveal those things to you. And then give it over to him. Kill it when it first shows its ugly head to you. Kill sin, or it will be killing you. As the last part of his warning, God tells Cain that he must rule over it. He must take hold of anger, of the anger he is kindling. And likewise, we must rule over it. Um, well, what does that mean, to rule over sin? We've been saying that a lot, so what does it mean? We will get into later how we rule over our sins in a little bit. But first, to understand it a little bit better, let's first look at what happens when we do not rule over it and we allow it to just grow. We coddle it and love it. Is there an end result of sin to letting it grow? Yes, and its results are dire. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when, it's fully con- when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. These verses remind me of Master Yoda quote from The Phantom Menace. Fear leads to hate and anger, uh, anger. And anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering. Giving in to sin just begets more sin and more sin. Um, and it just keeps growing, sin after sin after sin, to the point till it completely consumes you and we are given over to it eventually unto death. Our second point and warning today is this. Give into your beastly desires. Uh, sorry, no. Giving into, <laughs> giving into your beastly desires will eventually call for your blood. Giving into your beastly desires will eventually call for your blood. Continuing in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain allowed his sin to master over him, and he did not rule over it. And as a result, his inner murder of heart became a fully realized murder of man. And this was not some spur-of-the-moment, accidental, uh, hot-blooded, accidental murder in blind anger. It was methodical, cool-headed, and planned out. So angered at God and jealous of his brother, he wants to enact his own sort of leveling the playing field. And since he cannot kill God, he kills someone who is made in his image. We don't know what Cain says to his brother to get him to the field. Maybe he was something like, hey, I saw one of your sheep out in the field. Or, hey, can we go have a talk? Whatever it was, it was enough to convince Abel to go out into the field with his brother, who inwardly hated him very much and was ready to display that hatred in a real planned out act. The field would have been a secluded place away from others and depending on the height of whatever crop was being grown at the time would have hid the crime from a distance. This was not some uncontrollable urge that came over Cain in a moment. This action was planned out and is one of someone who willingly gave themselves over to the sin and embraced its desires. He does not hate his sin. He embraces it. In fact, he hates God and his people. And he finds what he thinks to be right. He thinks he's so smart and killing his brother is justified in his mind. And so, as he thinks hidden in the field, 
he commits the act and murders his brother. But of course, he's not smart enough to know that it's not so hidden from God. And once again, God confronts Cain with a prompting question. Where is Abel, your brother? And, we, and as we said before, of course, it's not because God does not know where he is. Abel's blood is calling out to him. This is simply God giving Cain yet another gracious chance to turn to him, realize the sinful nature of his heart that he upholds so dearly. However, as we read, Cain is not repentful, right? And his heart is hardened to his actions and to God. And he responds to his question with, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Sassy. In a way, yes, you are his keeper, being his older brother. Especially in Jewish culture, caring for your family was highly expected and can be seen all throughout the law of the Old Testament, right? Which shows provision for the care of your relatives, especially that brothers had the responsibility to rescue their siblings when they were in danger. He was, but he did the opposite. He held resentment towards his brother, and in that culminated into murder. And the word keeper here holds an even greater insult when we remember that his brother was a keeper of sheep. This was a direct insult to his brother's status as a shepherd, and just shows even more how much, how Cain's anger is just overflowing out of his heart to his brother. It is also a complete lie to God as he pretends to not know what he had done to his brother who was dead in the field, leaving it up to, I don't know. If you catch the mirror imaging here, it's very similar to the fall with Adam and Eve. Eve's response to God's questioning, an attempt to hide a shifting of responsibility. And for Cain in his response to God's question, we can see that there are no sorry feelings here. No guilt for what he had just done. He feels justified in what he has done. Abel deserved it. And despite God offering over and over a chance for forgiveness and repentance, a chance to self-examine and turn away from his actions and turn to God who can forgive, Cain continues to harden his heart against his creator, which is a direct result of him giving in to his beastly desires. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And it's given down to verse 28. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to their debased minds to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners, manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. Um, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only, give, they do, not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Do you see that in our world today? This is the result of continued unrepentant sin from someone that fully embraces their beastly desires. They become so opposed that God, <clears throat> sorry, so opposed to God that despite knowing the truth, they despise it and him. Just like Cain hating his shepherd, um, hating his brother, they hate the shepherd. 
<clears throat> Sorry. Just like Cain hating his shepherd brother, they hate the shepherd Savior. And although Cain knows God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, he continues on to choose death for momentary self-indulgence. Just like the analogy from earlier with the kid with the cookie. If he was caught right in the middle of eating the cookie and the parents came in, hey, what are you doing? The kid can double down, right? The kid can go... In that moment, that kid could choose either to obey his parents or, as my parents would call, choose hiney whoopings. <laughs> they knew it's coming, and that hiney whooping is the price to pay for unimproved cookies. But their love for that cookie is much more than honoring their parents at that moment. And disobedient children choose honey whoopings. And for Cain, he chose death. In choosing to indulge the desires of, his, of the beast in him, Cain is choosing death because to be separate from God is to be separate from life. And so God continues. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain's attempt to hide his sin is futile to God. He knows everything and knows Abel's blood is there in the ground. The imagery of Abel's blood calling out is being a representation of his life and the crying out to God from the ground is a reflection of the innocent pleading for justice. He's crying out for vengeance. Um, the word crying is the same word used to describe the pleas of the innocent men mentioned in Exodus. You shall not mistreat any middows or, fa or fatherless children. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me, and I will surely hear their cry. Why do they cry out to God? Because he is the one that vengeance belongs to, right? And because he promises to fulfill it. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion for his servants. And he is the only one who can truly vindicate, able to vindicate. Abel's blood cries out for the crimes against him to be paid, and as we know, the price for sin is death. And God brings perfect and right justice to any sinful action that is committed against the innocent. That is in his hands, and we can trust him with that. More so over, God brings perfect and righteous justice to every sinful action, because each and every sin is an offense to him, who is the most innocent and holy being. The price of sin is death. And God brings perfect and right justice to sinful actions against... I'm oh, sorry, I jumped up a paragraph. Um, the price of sin is death, and Cain chose death. Giving in to your beastly desires will eventually call for your blood. And it will call for your death on this earth to enter into an eternity of punishment for your sins against God. Many will say that seems harsh. That the punishment of sin is death. If God is so loving, why can't he just sweep it under the rug? Um, why can't he just forget it and slide? Well, if he did that, he would not be good or just. Um, a judge that just lets crime slide by would not be a good judge at all. Well, I'm not as bad as Cain. I didn't murder my brother. There are people way worse than me. Look at Hitler. A good judge will not listen to such a fallacy. The severity of someone else's crimes does not counterbalance the severity of yours. If, you if you're charged with theft, um, 
You cannot declare you're innocent just by pointing out a murderer. You're still charged with theft. Well, you mean because of one little sin, I'll be eternity, eternally punished? Um, well, in high school, my peers would always ask me to tell them Klaus stories. You see, my popularity in school hinged solely on the fact that my dad was cool and had a bunch of crazy stories. <laughs> One of these stories was a time when he was in vacation in Europe and at a campground. He and his friends had discovered a derelict boat in a bay that had accumulated crustaceans all across the hole. Um, wanting a snack and to make some money, my dad and his friends swam under the boat with a knife, gathered them up, cooked them up, and then they sold some of it at the camp. It seemed so harmless, right? And they all made a killing, and people wanted them to get more the next day. And so the next day they decided um, that they would go out. So again, there they are collecting the crustaceans. And so there's my dad. He goes under the boat again with his knife, cuts off some crustaceans, comes out of the water, opens his eyes to be met with um, some rifles on a boat pointed right at him. <laughs> and, um, well, it turns out that that derelict boat belonged to, at the time, a Yugoslavian military base. And so they were then arrested and spent a few hours detained as the Yugoslavian government figured out what was going on with these crustacean thieves. Normally, you steal crustaceans off someone's boat, nothing happens to you. They might even be happy that you cleaned your boat up a bit. You do the same thing to a boat of a sovereign nation, you are arrested at gunpoint. If that is what it's like with a sovereign nation, imagine so much so our sin is with our sovereign God. To put it another way, if you cheat in a board game, the worst thing that will happen is your friends don't want to play with you anymore. You cheat on a test, you might get a failing grade or you might get a detention. You cheat at work, you might lose your job. And you cheat on your taxes, you might go to prison. Who or what we offend with our actions determines the consequences. And since God being the perfect, eternal, innocent rule, any and all sin against him comes with an eternal price. We are dealing with an eternal judge, and so we deal with an eternal punishment. Every single person is born into sin, and all sinners are rightfully and justly the target of God's holy wrath. As a result, as a result of choosing your beastly desires and giving into your wants, that are contrary to you, God will eventually call for your blood and deliver that price in the form of separation from him and eternity suffering in hell. Fire and brimstone. And those who give into the sin, rejecting God, will have their blood called upon them. Which is why, again, it is imperative that we rule over our sin as for God's warning that came. And, that, and so that brings us back to our question from before. How do we rule over our sin, which we naturally love, so that we don't end up like Cain? What do we do when sin is crouching at the door, waiting to devour us? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if we believe that it, sorry. If we believe in total depravity, our default setting is for sin and to love that sin. So, what do we do? How do we do well and be accepted and so that we do not end up like Cain, murdering their brother in blissful ignorance? You might, say, you might be saying, since we all sin and naturally love it, are we all simply doomed to be like Cain, to continually spiral down in our sin 
as it grows into this monster of murder? Um, there must be something we could do to rule over it. There is. But Cain did not do it. Look at verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from the, your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me shall kill me. And God said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from his presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So far we have had two negative sounding warning points. The first one was, your beastly desires crouch at your door, seeking your blood. And the second was, giving into your beastly desires will eventually call for your blood. <clears throat> and I know it sounds so doom and gloomy, fire and brimstone, if we are just to look at those two points, but be hopeful. Because so far, with our main idea, we've only looked at the first half of our main idea. Rule over the beast in your heart by doing well. We have our what, so how do we do our how? How do we do well when we just love our sins so much? We do well by turning to the protective grace of God. Our third point and solution is this. Turning from your beastly desire will lead you to God's grace through Christ's blood. Turning to your beastly desires will lead you to God's grace through Christ's blood. All right. As a result of his sin, Cain receives a curse directly from God. This cur curse would make his efforts null and void be uh, because of his brother's blood that spilled into it. It is almost poetic that the till of the ground that spilled blood into the ground would now be cursed from the ground. And no matter how hard he works, the ground will no longer show its fruits to him. His entire life he's been working as a tiller, and now all those skills and all that head knowledge he has accumulated is futile and provides him with nothing. He received the exact opposite of a green thumb. So next time your plants die because you overwatered them, it, it could be worse. Even if he could still grow his crops, um, he is now a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Who would he sell it to? Who would he have true community with? It all mirrors the consequences of the fall. The fruits of the ground would be made through hard work, and Adam and Eve were made to leave the Garden of Eden. However, while similar to the consequences of the fall, Adam and Eve are not given directly on their heads a curse, but were given the consequences of sin itself. And if you remember, though, this is not the first time God has given a curse. The first being to the serpent in Genesis 3. Cain, in response, complains and makes a spectacle of himself. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground today, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Vengeance is the Lord's. But you can imagine Cain would be afraid after being found out that Adam or 
um, one of his sisters or anyone else on earth, which wouldn't have not been much yet, would want to enact their own revenge on Cain. Everyone would know, now know what he had done, and in his fear of their action, it's evident that he is scared. I doubt Cain is going to be invited to the next Thanksgiving dinner, but Cain has some mighty gall here to be complaining to God, who just gave him a curse because he had murdered his brother. This is unfair. Woe is me. Cain has just committed murder of his own brother, and now he's pulling the pull me act to God. It's almost funny. Now, I have no sympathy for kids when they get hurt by doing something you just told them not to do. You literally just explained that this was a bad idea, and then they act surprised when it, it was a bad idea. Exactly. <laughs> um, I just don't care at that point, right? And let's be honest, in our own sinful way, we get a little schadenfreude enjoyment out of them getting hurt, um, of someone, seeing someone get what they deserve, right? Why, why else would we love fail videos so much? It's always someone doing something stupid, and then they get exactly what they deserve, and we laugh. Some of us may even feel this way with Cain, right? He deserves the curse. Stop complaining. We want to see the bad guys get what's coming to them, right? When reading Esther on Purim, Jewish kid, kids will have noisemakers to block out the name of Haman and then celebrate when he's hanged. You go to the movies and everyone cheers when the villain is bested. And when it comes to Cain, some may say he should be dead. And despite death being the punishment of sin, Cain's not dead yet. Why? Why didn't God just strike him dead the moment he committed murder? Well, let me ask you this. Why aren't you dead yet? The answer, grace. Because God's grace. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him out should attack him. Eye for an eye, death for death, Cain the murderer deserves it. And yet, God, in his pure, perfect mercy, in his pure, pure perfect grace, holds back the deserving, full-fledged, perfect judgment of death for a time. Instead, God provides Cain with this mark that would protect him. I don't know exactly what this mark would have been if it was some kind of Notice, um, visible notice warning, do not kill, punishable sevenfold. But whatever it was, why would God do this? Why is God showing kindness, mercy, and love to this unrepentant murderer? Well, this brings up the doctrine of what we would call common grace. Simply put, common grace is the undeserved goodness of God towards sinners, despite their status in Christ. It is because God's common grace that sinners are not as bad as they could be. It is also through common grace that sinners experience the good things of this world. God displays his common grace by restraining evil and providing goodness to mankind as a whole. Every time there, those not in Christ experience a good marriage, that's the grace of God. Every time a sinner, unrepentant, enjoys a sunset, it's the grace of God. It's that common grace of God. Theologian John Murray puts it this way, common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree, falling short of salvation, which is undeserving and sin-cursed, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. 
My favorite history teacher, Mr. Shepherd, had this part of scripture above his blackboard. By, gr- by the grace of God, we are what we are. It is the simple grace of God that we are what we are. By God's grace, we are not awful, murderous beings, completely at all times self-centered and haters and never enjoying anything in this world. So why does God do this for us? Why would God bestow his goodness to people that hate him? To those that are not in him? The reason God does this, despite the fact we image bearers are tainted by the fall, is to show both himself and his image bearers and to encourage them to repent of their sins and turn fully to God in Christ. And, the, and that is the biggest form of common grace, that just like Cain, God does not immediately bring forth death as a result of our sin. Yes, that is the price. But God mercifully puts the pay date on hold for the debt for a chance to turn to him for a much better form of God's grace. In the ultimate final payment of sin accomplished in Jesus Christ. And it all seems so simple, right? Yet Cain does not see it. After multiple chances, after patiently waiting, after bestowing his common grace unto a wretched murderer, Cain still rejects God. He's still bitter, angered with him, and having no regard for, for, for having no regard on his sacrifice. 16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word Nod here means wanderer. And that is the life Cain chooses to live. He leaves God, the God he despises and tries to make it on his own efforts. And despite finding a plot of land to settle in, making himself a little home, later making a city, his heart is still in a status of one who wanders. He does not truly know his Lord because if he did, he would not hate him. If he truly knew the Lord that that intimate knowing that we talked about earlier, he would say, yes, my punishment is greater than I can bear, but I will trust in the Lord my God who is my Savior. Instead, he chooses death, his love of sin, and he rejects God. That is why Abel had regard, the other side of the coin. He knew who he was, and he knew who God was. And he trusted in God as his Savior from his sin. And while Abel's blood calls out for justice and vengeance to God against Cain's actions, and while we want to see vengeance for evildoers to get what they deserve, and those that are opposed to God will receive that justice, there is a blood that speaks a much better message than the blood that Abel calls for. I mean, than the message that Abel's blood calls for. Hebrews 12, 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the sprinkled blood which speaks a better, that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Christ's blood speaks a much better message. His blood brings to sinners what they do not deserve, pure forgiveness and righteousness through Jesus Christ. The evildoer is forgiven and made right in the hands of Jesus Christ being nailed on the cross. The punishment of sin is given to him and sinners get what they don't deserve. It is why someone like King David is a man after God's own heart. 
Someone who gave into his desires over and over again. David, um, <clears throat> David gave into his beastly desires when he was giving a longing look at Bathsheba on the rooftop. David gave a, into his beastly desires when he committed adultery with her. David gave into his beastly desires when he tried to cover it up. And David gave into his beastly desires when he had her husband murdered. David sounds like a way worse person than Cain. Why on earth should such a person be seen as a child of God and be considered a man after his own heart? Because God. Because when confronted by his sin, instead of a bitter, cold-hearted hatred towards God like Cain, David turns to the one who can forgive. Psalms 51, which was written by David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and do, and do what is evil in your sight so that you might may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Every man is by nature of the fall born a wretched, totally depraved, sinful person, tainted with the default setting to fall for the wicked, beastly desires, and left to their own devices, we continually return to our sin, full well knowing of God and the punishment for those sins. Yet we are still created image bearers of God. And God's grace has been shown so much more than common grace when he sent his Son Ephesians 2 says, And when we were dead in our trespasses of sin, in which you once, and when you were dead in your trespasses of sin, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of laugh, uh, of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up and raised us up with him seated and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yes, this punishment of sin is too great to bear. But God, Christians, we were all once as Cain, shaking our fist at God, angry with the way he made us, angry with the scenarios he puts us in, or simply just angered by the idea of God himself. We were once slaves to our sin, and Satan was our master. But God, being rich in his mercy, even when we hated his guts, sent his son 
and in Him you are saved. Praise Him for that. Don't go back to your old ways, cuddling with that snake in the bed. Don't welcome that wolf from the bathroom to just go around your house. That sin is dead to you. And you are no longer dead, but alive in Christ. Do not feel like you can control it and that you can hide it somehow. It is not of you. Turn to your Savior time and time again. We are, <clears throat> we are saved from... Sorry. Yes, we currently live in the world full of sin, but soon we will be giving restored bodies and be with God, walking in the cool of the day, in the new heavens and the new earth, rejoined with our Creator. If you're struggling with assurance, I just want to encourage you, while we strive to kill our sins and attempt to rule over the obesely desires, you must remember it's in the hands of God. It's in the hands of Christ on the cross. We, we cannot examine our hearts with the doctrine of total depravity without also looking at the doctrine of justification through Jesus Christ. Your sins are upon the cross and His righteousness is on you through His power. Don't become so hyper-focused with your struggle of sin that you allow it to become the only lens you look at life through. You might base your status on the kingdom of God based on your ability to resist temptation. On days you do good, I'm in. And on days you do bad, oh man, not sure if I'm saved. Oh, if I could just master the sin totally, but I just keep slipping up again and again. I'm not sure if I'm in the family of God. Stop it. Get some help. You are in the eternal holding hands of Jesus Christ, your Savior. If you are in Him, nothing can rip you away. Remember this. When you sin, turn to the one who forgives. Go to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have them encourage you in the gospel. In Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we are seen as by God in His righteousness. Strive to be what you already are in Him. Righteous in the eyes of God because of the work of Christ. Stop thinking for His forgiveness is too weak for your sin. That is why we must remind ourselves daily of the gospel. This, of course, does not mean that we don't stop warring against our sin or that we stop trying to um, strive to be like Christ because we are at war with it. But if we separate ourselves from our commander and from our fellow soldiers in the church, we lose morale. And even despite, we know that the war is already won in Christ. And like I said, of course, it's not a free pass to go do sin. Romans 6 warns us of, of that. We still must war, struggle, struggle, and fight against it with Christ every day as we rule over our beastly desires. But I assume you Christians in here know a little bit better than that. Still, war against your sin. You must rule over it. But just remember, Christ is with you, and he's already won, and he already rules over it. And to those not in Christ yet, still in love with your sin and angered by God, I beg you to turn to Christ. The punishment for your sins is death. And sooner or later, though it's not fully realized now, God will no longer hold back his punishment against you for choosing death. Being image bearers, he has given you that common grace. You've seen his grace. 
Every good thing that comes from is coming from Him. Every enjoyable moment in your life, every happy memory, and especially every day that you are granted on this earth, apart from Him, is His common grace. And it's just like Him prompting questions to Cain. Every day, God will question your heart and your conscience and make you question your love relationship with that sin. And you will have to ask yourself whether you will choose the Lord of all creation or to be lorded by your sin. And one day, the questions will stop. And the days God provides you will be up. And like a vapor, the price of sin will be called upon you. And if you are not in Christ, you will be sent further away, even further than the land of Nod, and further, even furthermore so from the Lord. There is no common grace in hell. It is just every, every enjoyable thing comes from God. And so from apart from Him, there is only suffering. My friends, do not fall prey to the beast crouching at your door, but turn to the protective grace of God. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.